Hello, listener. This is your host, Rachel Zucker. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to episode 67 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. This episode features journalist, documentarian, and podcaster John Bewin. John Bewin is the audio director at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and the host of Seen on Radio. In the past few years, Seen on Radio released two series, Seeing White and Men, both of which I've listened to multiple times. I'm deeply appreciative of John's work to investigate the history of whiteness and patriarchy. John, who is white and male, sets out to explore how and why whiteness and masculinity were constructed, how and why they are perpetuated, and how we might work to undo white supremacy and toxic masculinity. Last summer, I was invited by Hannah Vanderhart and Jessica Stark, two doctoral candidates in English at Duke and avid Commonplace listeners, to read in a series they curate called Little Corner Poetry Reading Series under the theme Excess Women. I was thrilled to accept, especially after having listened to the episode of Seeing White, in which John Bewin investigates a certain self-satisfied Yankee bias against the South that I must admit I've participated in. John agreed to meet with me while I was in Durham, and on February 8, 2019, we recorded a conversation in his office at CDS. We talk about why it's necessary for white people to talk about whiteness and work actively against white supremacy. We talk about the format of his podcast, specifically the complexities of exploring themes of whiteness and masculinity from the subjectivity of a white male, and the necessity of working with a conversational partner, Dr. Chenjerai Kumanika in Seeing White, or a co-host, Celeste Headley in Men who can push back against assumptions or challenge you in moments of privilege. We talk about empathy, virtue signaling, and what white people might do to begin to address generations of inequity and injustice on individual, and perhaps more importantly, institutional levels. John Bewin, in his podcasts, puts ideas, information, and evidence at the center of his investigation. Commonplace focuses more on relationships, creativity, the ways individuals make art and live their lives. But listening to John's audio work and speaking with John makes me think about poets who are writing about whiteness and masculinity in necessary, challenging ways, and of course, some of the glaringly unhelpful examples of the way some poets write about whiteness and masculinity. As John reminds us, white people are trained to be in denial about whiteness. I'm trying to think about this in my writing, in my parenting, in making commonplace. What am I not seeing? How am I perpetuating the very things I wish to destroy? Where is my ego in all of this? How do I, as a person with immense privilege, including white privilege, use my privilege for good? Which of my privileges am I willing to sacrifice for a more just and equitable world, and what does that even look like? How can I be more transparent about my own positionality? How can I, as host of this podcast, as well as the producers, sound editor, and social media director, be more vocal about our individual subjectivities and political convictions? A conclusion of the Seeing White series, writes John Bewin on the Scene on Radio website, is that white people must own and take responsibility for the advantages that come with whiteness. 
But that is not the same as saying that you as a white person are to blame and need to feel ashamed. I ask myself, am I raising powerful feminist men who might use their many privileges to work towards a more just and equitable world? How do I teach my sons to dedicate themselves to the work of equity and inclusion without being ashamed of who they are? If we are ever going to put the legacy of white supremacy behind us, white people and those with male privilege must do the work of dismantling the structures that perpetuate everything from microaggressions to horrific acts of violence, like the recent white nationalist massacre of Muslim worshippers in New Zealand. In my own life, this is a constant process of trying to see whiteness and other forms of power in myself and in the world and figure out what to do about it. I talk about this in almost every episode of Commonplace, whether it's discovering that I was white in my 20s or thinking about the intersection between Jewishness and whiteness at this moment in history. I've thought and written about whiteness with increasing directness and try to write about whiteness even when I'm not writing only about whiteness. Often I am embarrassed to remember my earlier, less nuanced thinking. And I assume I will one day be embarrassed about my current ways of thinking and talking about this, perhaps even by this introduction. So be it. I must try in small and increasingly large ways to do something. For a long time, I felt that one common sense first step is for all people who teach to receive anti-racism and anti-sexism training whether it is something like the workshop John attended through the Racial Equity Institute or the kinds of programs that the Dialogue Arts Project, the subject of Commonplace Episode 36, offer. White people, this is a really, really basic first step. Do a training. Listen to Seeing White. Men, do a training and listen to men. Read the books listed in the bibliographies on Seen on Radio, read and use the study guides and transcripts. Definitely check out the Racial Imaginary Institute, an interdisciplinary cultural laboratory founded by Claudia Rankin. The video recordings on the Racial Imaginary Institute from their Whiteness Symposium and the work in their first issue, The Whiteness Issue, are essential. Listener, if you feel comfortable sharing, we'd love to hear from you about these issues. How do you see yourself in relation to whiteness, masculinity? How has your perspective evolved over time? What resources, books, podcasts, mentors, poems, trainings, experiences have helped you educate yourself? What are the places of increasing awareness, acceptance, or discomfort for you around these issues? You can find transcripts and bibliography resources at seenonradio.org. That's S-C-E-N-E on radio.org. We will also link to them on commonpodcast.com. Please also visit commonpodcast.com to become a patron of Commonplace. As you know, the money we get through Patreon is currently our only source of funding and does not cover the costs of making the podcast. Many, many thanks to all of our current patrons. Thank you also to all of you who contact us with comments, suggestions, and words of encouragement. We love hearing from you. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive copies of Reality Radio, edited by John Bewin and Alexa Dilworth, courtesy of University of North Carolina Press. Stamped from the beginning, 
by Ibram Kendi, courtesy of Bold Type Books, and White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, courtesy of Beacon Press. Also, White, an Abstract, a new chapbook by poet Joy Katz. Commonplace, with the help of Joy Katz, is also crowdsourcing a list of books, poetry and nonfiction, that have helped poets write thoughtfully and effectively about whiteness, and we will post this list for all patrons. Many thanks to the University of North Carolina, Bold Type Books, Beacon Press, and Joy Katz. Just a few days before I recorded this introduction, students of color and white allies at the Ethical Culture Fieldston School, the high school I attended in New York, locked themselves in and the administration out of part of the school, demanding action against bias, bigotry, and racism on campus. After 72 hours, the administration accepted their demands, which included a call for faculty bias training, curricular changes, the establishment of racial affinity groups, and student representation on the Board of Trustees. I'm heartened by this peaceful, passionate student action, by the response of the school, and by a sign made in support of the student protesters by a lower school student. The sign had just one word on it ethical. I hope this conversation might help those of us who are trying to write or make art about systems of power, or at least consider how our art is related to systems of power. I hope this conversation might help those of us who want to look more honestly and directly at our own privilege, to be more deeply informed so we might think with more nuance and act with more efficacy. And frankly, I hope this includes all of us. And now, Here's John Bewin. Hi, John Bewin. Hey, Rachel Zucker. Is it Zucker or Zucker? Uh, either way. Okay. I say Zucker. Okay. Hey, well, I think what you say is the one that... <laughs> it's nice to meet you in person. It's super nice to meet you. Um, well, so here we are. We're in the Center for Documentary Studies in Durham, North Carolina, and I was hoping we could start off just by if you could tell me what this place is and what it does and and how you came to be here and what right. you do here. Okay. I'm going to try to avoid making that a 20 minute. <laughs> yeah. Thing. Well, also with like 15 questions in one. <laughs> right. So the Center for Documentary Studies is is kind of part of Duke University and kind of not. Mm -hmm. We always say we, we sort of have one foot on and one foot off the campus. It is a support corporation of Duke. It exists at the pleasure of Duke University. And we teach Duke students here at CDS. Duke has a relatively unusual program in documentary studies. Mm -hmm. It's a, a certificate program. And all those courses are taught here at CDS, photo, uh, film, video, writing, audio, oral history. But CDS is also at the same time a kind of a 501c3 community organization that does things that are not related to teaching Duke students like a podcast called Seen on Radio <laughs> and a book publishing program and an exhibitions program and so on. And we have our own budget. So that's the shortest answer I think I can do on CDS. I'm a lifer as a public radio reporter and producer and documentary maker. And I worked for Minnesota Public Radio for many years. I worked for NPR News for a time out in the Rocky Mountain West. Um, I worked for something called American Radio Works, which was an American public media documentary unit for eight years. And I lived, I'm from Minnesota. I worked in Minnesota for 
long time and uh, moved here actually when I was still working for American Radio Works. It was just kind of a geographical move. Hmm. Didn't want to live out my days in Minnesota and my brought my family of four to North Carolina. And then it was kind of an informal relationship then with the Center for Documentary Studies. They didn't have an audio program yet. They thought, cool, radio producer is coming down here. We'll give you office space and maybe you are of use around here once in a while. And then they started kind of talking me into teaching continuing ed courses and stuff like that. And then basically over the course of a few years, they swallowed me up or I created a really great job for myself here. So full-time since 2006 as the director of the audio program here. But it remained part of my job to produce. So in addition to some teaching, I was making stuff that were now productions of the Center for Documentary Studies. And for years, that was still stuff that I was shopping to the public radio system in one way or another, taking it to NPR or This American Life or putting out a series on special on PRX and then started the podcast, joined the podcast stampede in in fall of 2015 mm-hmm. with seen on radio awesome that's super helpful so <laughs> and i first encountered your work um i didn't really remember your name at first but it was through your episode of this american life little mm-hmm. war on the prairie um and then i don't really remember how i came to listen to seeing white and men but both of them just utterly blew me away. Mm. And I I was planning on like re-listening to every single episode and writing down my favorite quotations and questions. And I got through all of seeing white and part of men. And then I got distracted by this other thing. But I also was thinking about that that's not actually the way to prepare to talk mm. to you. First mm. of all, listeners can go listen for themselves, which I hope that they will. And you have a great study guide and a bibliography that's available on the Scene on Radio website, which is in- incredibly helpful. And so what I'm really interested in is the story of like how you came to make these series and some of the challenges and then some specific questions, which I don't know if you'll be surprised. Like, you know, when I contacted you, if you thought like, why is this poet want to talk to me? But there are a lot of issues that are coming up right now in the poetry world and definitely in the, in the literary world, but particularly in poetry around documentary poetry and um, we're a little late to the game. And so I think it's really interesting from a formal perspective and really from an, an ethical perspective to think about what questions you've had to ask and try to answer in the making of these series and how that could be relevant to writers, to other kinds of artists and to poets. You know, I know you say on the Seeing White series that you, in 2015, um, you went to a program at the Center for Racial... Racial Equity Institute. The Racial Equity Institute. I guess I was wondering, that sparked something for you, but can you talk about like what it was that made you realize, you know what, I think I I need to make this series. Right, right, right. Let me, before I answer that question, I, I just a note, by the way, that the Center for Documentary Studies who really 
has a very consciously a very very broad take on documentary mm. and we've had for example we have a visiting professorship and uh, this is at least 10 years ago maybe 15 years ago natasha trethaway spent a year here as our visiting documentary poet <laughs> right and we also like uh, alan gerganus who's a novelist best known as a novelist spent a year as our documentarian in residence even though literally he writes fiction almost all the time yeah, so I, I think this place as an institution really kind of gets, you know, these kinds of the, the kind of broad applications and the, these intersections, right? So to answer your question, the things that I say in the first episode of Seeing White, that's pretty straightforward in many ways explanation. It was sort of like, I felt going back, really, I suppose you could start with, with Trayvon Martin's death, which is 2012. Michael Brown in 2014, and then the other kind of the series of police shootings and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, which I really sort of understood the Black Lives Matter movement to be just sort of saying, for God's sake, what the hell, right? White people come, right? Are we still, mm -hmm. still, right? Yeah. What's, what's up with you? And so I felt that very acutely as somebody who's been interested in race and reported on racism and all that thing for a long time but that it felt like this kind of new level. And then at the same time, the rise of Trumpism, which just felt like this huge step backward, like decades step backward, at least at the kind of superficial level, right? Of what's what our political leaders are talking about and the way they're talking. So you referred to the Racial Equity Institute, which is a two-day anti-racism workshop. People who have listened to Seeing White, it's in there, you know, I so I went back almost a year later and recorded it and used it in the series. But the first time I went, which is, was at the beginning of 2015, I was just a participant, right? In a, in a, and I was sort of nudged there by my bosses here at CBS. Actually, um, they wanted us, everybody to do, there were a couple of anti-racism trainings that we were sort of nudged into doing. And I will confess that I was a little resistant and I sort of felt like I've been reporting on racism for years. I kind of know what's up with racism. Do I really need to do this training? So that's really in keeping with the whole spirit of the whole, what became of seeing white, I think, because somebody said, uh, I think this was somebody on Twitter, a person of color who I said, when it comes to, you know, don't worry about preaching to the choir with white people, there is no choir. Mm. Or at least what I would say, the way I've often said it, is that the choir has a lot to learn, too, right? We all do. All of us who think that we're non-racist, quote-unquote, good white people and anti-racists have a lot to learn, too. We're not there yet, <laughs> to put it mildly. So, so that was my experience. And I came out of that. It wasn't that there were the huge number of facts that I hadn't heard, although there were some. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And kind of the, accum the cumulative effect was that I came out with a sense of clarity about, okay, it's worse than I thought. It's deeper than I thought. It's more pervasive than I thought. Racism, that is. And as a kind of journalist slash documentarian, there was this kind of clearer sense about, all right, here's how white America, kind of in the mainstream, and for that matter, kind of progressive anti-racist white America. Here's how we understand our history and our society. And then over here is the reality. And there's a pretty big gap there. <laughs> Where did this idea of a white race come from? 
God, nature, or is it man-made? And if somebody manufactured the idea, why? For what purpose? How has the meaning of white changed over the centuries, and how does it function now? The stories that we carry around about whiteness and what it means, stories we may not even know we're carrying, but we are, all of us, are those stories true? And when you're, you know, any kind of a journalist, that's like, you just start kind of rubbing your hands together. It's like, okay, uh, there, that's, that's this huge invitation to go to work. Mm. When people sort of think something is true and something different is true. And so there was kind of a clarity about what you, the kinds of things that there would be to say about that. The other context is that probably 20 years ago, I was reading Race Trader. There have been people and academics and others who've talked about whiteness or whiteness studies now has been around for a while. I'd heard kind of a little bit, I'd read a little bit. Even years ago, it had sort of hung out there as, should I do something on the radio about this people who are looking at whiteness? Mm. But I never had. And so all of this kind of combined to where coming out of the, the workshop, the one I went to just as a participant, I was thinking, maybe it's a whiteness thing. Just like, let's turn the lens on whiteness and look at whiteness and white people. And so I was started kind of ruminating mm. about it. And then that's, again, the beginning of 2015, no, I'm sorry. It's the end of 2015. I'm losing it. Um, I think you said you went in December of 2015. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So it's the beginning of 2016. And then it's the presidential campaign. And I think it was around the time that Trump was nominated by mm. the Republicans that I said to myself, all right, it's it's, it's a go. We're going to do the, the whiteness project. So it makes utter sense to me that you saw how important this was, that you realized there was this um, invitation to do some important journalistic work and um, some clarity around what there might be to say. What made you feel that you were the person to say it <laughs> or to do it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Hmm. Uh, you know, I guess, can you be more precise about... What, yeah, I was trying to leave it open because I could imagine like actually four very different answers. I guess one is could be like what gave you the courage because it's it is you yeah. can you can really get into a lot of trouble both deserved and undeserved, you know, or what made you feel in your own life um that this was how you wanted to spend your time. Because um, you knew by this time you were an experienced audio maker that this was going to be an intense, you know, deep dive. Yeah, so yeah. I could imagine either that you felt like this is what I need to do for mm -hmm. personal and professional reasons or a sense of like somebody should be doing this. Yeah. And maybe you had the the safety in a certain mm. way to do it. Yeah, I think that's all true. I mean, I think, I guess I've never really shied away from kind of going straight at things that I thought, you know, that were sensitive or that difficult. I guess I, I don't know, other than just to say that's kind of a fact that I've, 20 years ago when I was a young reporter in Minnesota and there was this kind of rumble beneath the surface about African-Americans moving to Minnesota from Chicago. This gets referred to in mm -hmm. Seeing White at one point 
from Chicago and Gary, Indiana and places like that. And there were a few kind of articles that skirted around the edge of it. And it was being talked about in some really uncomfortable ways on local talk radio. And yeah, I was the one who sort of went to my editor at Minnesota Public Radio and said, okay, I'm going to do like a, a couple of part series going straight at that. What's going on? Why are people freaking, you know, so I, I it's always been something that I've been willing to do. Mm. And I guess I just feel like if I'm going to approach it just in as honest way as I can and just be really transparent about, I just, these are the questions and here's what I'm trying to find out. Then I'm willing to kind of let the chips fall where they may. Mm-hmm. So it was sort of like, there was a sense of, well, why not me? I'll just, I'll do it. I have this little platform and it was a quite a little platform at that point. Our audience was quite small and I did not expect that to change mm. because of this series. <laughs> I didn't think it did as it turns out. But the other, the other thing that you, that I thought maybe you were referring to with the question is, is it problematic to do it as a white person? Please. Right. <laughs> that, that definitely is part of my question. And yeah. I, yeah, I'd love to hear you speak about that. And also the decision, which I think is one of the things that's um, most effective about the series, um, both of them, of having either a co-host or someone that you can discuss things right. with. So in seeing white, Chandraya Kumanika, and then um, Celeste Hadley, yeah. um, you know, in men, but you sort of say in seeing white, I'm not sure I can do this alone. <laughs> you know, I, I need some help. I mean, you're clearly aware of the potential pitfalls of being a, a white guy talking about whiteness. Yeah. But I was hoping you could talk a little more about about right. that moment and, you know, how you convinced. Chandra. Yeah, to, to do it. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it really was. And and that was one thing that I tried to do in both of these was to be really transparent about all this. And, and it was more, it went more or less like what you heard. But but my thinking about it was, on the one hand, it feels useful for me, for white people to be doing this kind of thing. We shouldn't just leave it to people of color and journalists of color to be the ones telling the truth about racism. Mm-hmm. Or educating or, us about right. racism or, yeah. That was like a reason to do it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I understood, and this is really an important part of the whole kind of whiteness um, dialogue, is that white people are suspect because it's so central to to the way whiteness works that we are trained to be in denial. We're trained to not see it. We're trained to to not be able to see it clearly. So that's why I, yeah, at, at a certain point, and it, and I. I confess that it wasn't until I had already started kind of doing some research and got into it at a certain point that I did, that I thought of Chandrai and what became part 11 the story uh, called Danger was the episode mm-hmm. where I tell the story about being held up at knife point by a black teenage kid in Philadelphia and I tell this 25 year old 30 year old story and that was when I was doing some of the early research and interviews for Seeing White and we had an event here in Durham uh, at a at a a live event podcasters got together and did this live event. And I was going to tell that story on stage as almost kind of a test run, or I thought I was going to use it for seeing white in some way. Then it seemed like just a very loaded story. It is a very heavily racially loaded story. So I, Chandra and I were acquainted and we'd had some really good conversations and things. And so I thought of him and I, and I emailed him. I said, can I run something past you before mm-hmm. I go on stage and tell the story? I just want to make sure I'm not stepping in it somehow. 
and I, I, I sent him, I guess I sent him the script and basically he said, no, this looks fine. If anything, I think maybe you're being a little too hard on yourself. In the story, as I've told it over the years, I'm the one in danger, right? The kid is the threat. I'm his potential victim. And in that moment, yes, he had a weapon. He was threatening me. He could have hurt me. But isn't it fair to say, of the two of us meeting on that street that day, in our everyday lives, Michael was by far the more vulnerable person. To say that, I don't need to know anything more about his life besides the fact that he was a black teenager living in that neighborhood. A place, like so many others, created with systematic inevitability by the history of exploitation and exclusion we've been talking about in this series. Here was a community of black people just a few generations removed from slavery, still struggling to find a way in, still pretty much walled off from the life of safety and opportunity that I took for granted. That was sort of where I had the aha moment. What if I were to involve him as a kind of check, mm -hmm. as a kind of uh, backstop uh, in the whole series? So it was very kind of experimental when we got into it. And I wasn't even sure, like when we did the first episode, will we do this with every episode? Or was it really not even going to work that well? But then obviously it really felt like it was working and he was in almost all the episodes doing these conversations with me. I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the things that struck me so strongly about the series is the way in which the format that I haven't really heard a format exactly like that. You know, you're doing these interviews um, and presenting to the listener very important historical, scientific, sociological research. You're talking to these amazing scholars like Nell Irvin Painter, Ibram Kendi, Dorothy Roberts, yeah. Dr. Gwen Westerman. And you know, as a listener, as a white listener, I'm listening and I'm thinking, you know, some of these things I knew, a lot of them I did not know, despite thinking of myself as a educated person who's long been interested in, you know, anti-racism education and efforts. And, but I was very surprised, but there was something that only was able to happen for me in terms of being able to intellectually and emotionally integrate the information that you were giving me when I heard those conversations between you and Chendrai. Mm. And there were moments where um, you asked him the question that had been on my mind that, of course, as a listener, I couldn't say, wait, John, ask this. Yeah. Um, it had to do with um, the warmth of the relationship. It had to do with your willingness to make jokes with each other and tease each other a little bit. Um, you know, I kept listening and thinking like, you know, I was so grateful for the information, for the experience, for the way that it allowed me to be very vulnerable to my own, you know, thinking about how am I complicit in all of this? What am I doing? What am I not doing? Um, it allowed me, I think, to be much more vulnerable and much closer to it. And it also made me think about like, what are, is there, how could I employ as a maker 
something that enables my listeners or my readers, um, you know, when I'm a writer, to have that kind of deepening, opening um, experience where it's the difference between like sitting in a classroom somewhat anonymously and passively and then ha- being really emotionally brought in. Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, my insider question since I'm <laughs> here is if you're willing to answer it, like how much of those conversations did you edit in terms of were there mistakes or jokes that you made that when you listened back to them, you were like, yeah, in the moment that that Mm -hmm. was like a funny moment or, but it's actually not okay. No, I don't think things like that happened. Mm -hmm. We did. I will say that, um, you know, those were not just raw. Mm -hmm. There was some preparation that went in. We would talk ahead of time about, you know, and kind of have a little bit, we would kind of plot it out. Like these are kind of the beats or I'm going to ask you this question. And so he would, you know, have time to think about what he's going to say in response to, but then also there was, there were things that came up that were not, that were not planned. The other thing to say is quite honestly, that we typically would kind of take two shots at it. Uh huh. Like we were really doing it on the fly. I, the, the episodes were not made ahead of time. I, I made the first episode and we put it out. And, wow. and we were committed to a, putting one out every other week. And so it was just a race. Me, mostly, you know, with the writing and production of the next one. A lot of the interviews were done. Some of the interviews weren't even done. Hmm. So they had to be written and, and produced. And then, and then I would be typically sent, and, and also we're working with our editor, Loretta Williams. She's in L.A. I'm sending her scripts. We would do like a read-through on the phone at one point. But that was often, say, on the Friday before the episode was coming out on a Wednesday. And then when we got the script in order, I would send it to Chenjerai. And that was maybe sort of Friday or over the weekend. And then very often he and I were recording like at 9.30 or 10 o'clock on Monday night. Hmm. And the episode's going out at Wednesday at noon. And that might take a couple hours. Also, Chenjerai and I, it's ridiculous. I mean, to this day, the other just a week or two ago, I said, he calls me up. He says, do you have five minutes? So like an hour later, you know, I said <laughs> well, that we had another one of our five minute conversations. I think the thing that these conversations really need is something that people are deeply illiterate with is this issue of structural racism or institutionalized patterns of exploitation and oppression that are like racialized in certain ways and really just a more complex engagement with how power works and what race and ethnicity has to do with it. You know, this is to me almost distinct from this problem of, it's not distinct, I guess, but almost distinct from race relations or prejudice. And so I I really have a problem with people framing like that. In fact, John, if I can, I want to deputize you as a white person to go out into the world and like sort of intervene when you see people framing it like that. You know what Mm. I mean? But yes, I hear you. Power, and, and there's an idea that people have talked about that you can have, you can have racism without individual racists, because systems and structures have been set up in a way that exactly. they sort of run this way on their own at this point, right? Or at least that's, that's, that's a, right. That's yeah. a thesis to be looked at. Right. I mean, I, I mean, I think, and in a way, that's like more worrisome. 
but we would we would kind of go through our really roughly scripted thing and we would do it once and then we'd say okay let's just do it again mm. because we always i think we sort of felt like we could do it a little tighter or it could be you know i, th- I thought of something how i'd l- really like to say that better and then there would be a little bit of editing of it just where we got repetitive or whatever mm. there were a couple things like there's a moment back to this uh, the danger episode where we talk we're talking about violence and so the the big picture the the main thrust of the episode was to sort of acknowledge that there's this hundreds of years of history of white people saying that black men are scary you know violent rapists when in fact <laughs> the history of white violence against black people is many 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 times greater right mm-hmm. when i have the image of the scale right and so we're talking about all that, and then we get to talking about things like the school shootings. And we, we were having the conversation right after, uh, I think it was the Philando Castile, not after the incident and, of his death, but after the guy was um, acquitted or not mm-hmm. charged, whatever it was that happened, and the kind of the pain of that. And I was saying this kind of heartfelt thing about trying to imagine, like just acknowledging this fact and that I have a, I have a son who literally had a like a toy gun when he was 12 or 13, like the one that Tamir Rice mm-hmm. had, that he went out and run, ran around the neighborhood with his friends. And it would have never crossed my mind in a million years to not let him run around with a toy gun because a cop might come up and kill him? Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me, right? So I was kind of acknowledging this, and I just can't quite imagine what it's like to be on the other side of that line where... You just never know when you could be next when the cop's pulling you over or whatever, right? I felt like I was saying this heartfelt thing. And Chenjirai basically says very politely, you know, it's nice for you to say that. You know, it's nice to try to feel what other people are feeling, but it really, that doesn't do me any good. It's sort of like, what, what, are, what are you and people like you going to do mm-hmm. to change this situation, right? So that was an instance where it was not really scripted and that was an instance where i think the first time i said it his response was kind of blunt mm-hmm. <laughs> in the second time uh the one we used it was more gentle mm-hmm. and now that i think back on that now that i'm saying that to you i think i wonder if i used the right one mm. right but that that there were moments like that you know that comes to mind as an instance where it wasn't so much I don't think that anybody said anything that was terribly, you know, insensitive or over over some kind of line, but the, there was that kind of dynamic. That mm-hmm. was an interesting moment. It's such an interesting moment, and it's such an interesting episode. I was going to ask you about it um, because it breaks the form a little bit um, yeah. in the sense that you're you're really telling a very personal story. There's there's personal stuff that comes up in every episode. I mean, you're very present as a a writer, producer, you know, maker, interviewer, and, you know, trying to make your motivations transparent and trying to make your, your positionality and your subjectivity present. But, you know, this one is really very interesting because you're telling a story from your own life and then you're looking back and really critiquing why you told that story so many times and how telling it at that point really you had a very different understanding of it. It almost felt like a mini Ars Poetica Mm -hmm. in the middle of the series to me, you know, in a kind of like direct authorial address. Like you say, 
you have this cringeworthy, in your own words, realization that your decision to walk through this high crime neighborhood with your bike and this huge box was partly because you may have wanted to get credit for displaying your lack of fear, your non-racist, non-profiling swellness. And, you know, there's a way in which the whole series, you could see it as you're willing to walk through, you know, the dangerous territory of being a white person trying to talk about whiteness. It's obviously a different kind of danger, but without hurting um, people, without misusing um, your platform, and also being aware of both, you know, really sincerely wanting to do something good. And also, to what extent are you perhaps like, you know, saying, hey, I'm a good white person and I'm a good reporter and I'm a, I'm, you know, sort of willing to walk down this path. And then again, you know, again, like we were saying, Chandra, I really, I may have heard only the second one, so I didn't hear the blunt one, but I, I just re-listened to that one. And when you say Tamir Rice, he repeats, he, yes. there's this, he says Tamir Rice and there's a pause yeah. Yeah. and there is so much said and unsaid in that pause. Yeah. The two of you are not even saying Tamir Rice's name from the same place. Mm -hmm. It's just, that mm -hmm. is very clear, yeah. I think, yeah. um, in that moment. Yeah, I just got carried away and <laughs> I didn't have a question. You know, I, I guess, how do I ask it? In a do you want me to respond to the part about, yeah. about whether I'm the, the virtue signaling? Sure. Right? Which is, um, I was conscious all the while, right, that people could see it that way. And basically, I just, I had to just say, fine, mm -hmm. you know, if somebody is going to see it that way. You know, and other people have said you know, ver the, the, even that that accusation, right? Virtue signaling, it's sort of like political correctness. It's sort of something that people who, I mean, this is maybe an easy response, is a, a, a too easy response is that, you know, white people who don't want to talk about these things or don't want to really address them kind of fling those accusations at people who, white people who do want to address mm -hmm. them, right? Like you're just, you're not sincere. You're just, you're just announcing your own virtue. I just think, you know, we can't do any work then if we're going to be sensitive to that, to that accusation. That doesn't mean that there's not a sense in which I actually take it seriously and try to be thoughtful about it and try to stay humble, you mm -hmm. know, in both the way that I'm presenting things and approaching things. And, but I can't, you know, at a certain point, I, I, it's sort of like, it's sort of like writing or anything, right? If you just, if you're just going to decide, well, this, you know, there are all these ways in which we can talk ourselves out of doing it, including, well, I'm just showing off here or, mm -hmm. and so it's just sort of like you wouldn't do anything. So I guess I just had to kind of take that on board and just do the best I could. If anything, I was surprised that I didn't get more of that thrown at me. Mm. It would have come mostly from white people, although it, it could have come from people of color too, for that matter. And I and I really didn't. There was there were a few, mm -hmm. a few people said that kind of thing, but not very many, honestly. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but all, all, yeah, I guess ultimately all I can say is that I 
is that I get the question and I and I did take it seriously. But I, I... yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a really it's both a totally boring kind of it's important to ask it. It's important to be aware of it. And then it's important to not let it stop you mm-hmm. from doing um, important work. But I do think it is a big question. It's a big question for my students, um, mm-hmm. particularly if they're writing about family history or writing about whiteness or writing about race. And it's usually the students who are most distressed by the questions are the ones who probably need to be least distressed and those who aren't distressed need to be a little more distressed. But this question of like, you know, am I profiting in some way, whether it's virtue signaling like, oh, oh, look, I've shown you that I care about the right things and therefore I'm a good person, but also am I profiting in some way? Like, you know, these two series, your audience, they were really effective and people really liked them. And so now you have this big audience you know, it, relatively, it, <laughs> right? <laughs> Not in the big leagues with mm-hmm. this American life or anything, but yeah, the audience grew quite a bit. Which, as I said, I did not see that coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think about that. I, I I think about that, but then on the other side is, of course, that I want every single person in the country to hear these series, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and the the response has been kind of qualitatively the kind of the quality of the responses of. Yeah, like I throw tweets into a folder and a, or like where we made a Facebook ad out of some of them and that kind of thing, or the the reviews on iTunes and that kind of thing. The, the, the number of people who have said things like, well, if I had a quarter for everybody who said, well, this should be required listening, or I wish everybody would hear, you know, this should be in the school, everybody needs to hear this. For a fair number of people has really kind of struck a really powerful chord, which I am just, I'm... Needless to say, it feels good when somebody says something like that. And then having even just gone from the radio world where you you make a piece and you hand it over to a radio show and the audience is built in and so then you go make the next piece to this much more kind of entrepreneurial thing when you when the day I started a podcast, all of a sudden I've got I've got complete freedom. I can do whatever I want. And I've got no audience. <laughs> so that whole thing of trying to scare up an audience and it gets to be a little bit of a, of a preoccupation. And so anyway, yeah. So you want people to hear it. Yeah. There's a lot of tension in all of that. And the sense of, you know, where's, where's my ego in all this? And how do you even separate your ego-based motivations for wanting everybody to hear what you're doing? And the part of you that wants everybody to hear what you're doing because you think it's might be valuable and might help change the world in some small way, right? It's pretty hard to separate those things. I mean, absolutely. I don't think you can separate them. (laughs) Um, And I think, you know, I don't know how to say this, but like it, I do think it requires a certain amount of ego to bother or or have the fortitude to do this work because there are risks involved and, you know, you're not going to get rich doing it. And, um, you, you know, it's nice that you didn't get a ton of criticism or, you know, trolling or, but, um, that's, you yeah, knew that was a possibility to stay with this just for a minute. Cause you know, I was one of the people who tweeted at you, you know, f- for poetry listeners, they might not know what the uh, driveway moment is, but hmm. it's, you know, when you're listening to a radio show or a podcast and um, you pull into your 
driveway and you just sit in the driveway because it's so compelling that you don't want to get out. And I actually had a moment listening to men and I can't remember which episode it was, but it was the number of the episode, but it was when you were talking about basically the way boys are educated in the patriarchy and particularly the way the patriarchy sort of has to get rid of the mother. And I happened to be, I don't drive very much because I live in New York city, but um, I happened to be in Maine and not, it wasn't a driveway moment. It I had to pull over on the side, you know, safely out off the road. And I was weeping. So we have lots of stories in which the mother, in, in our culture, in which the mother of the youthful male protagonist dies, setting the boy off on his journey of self-discovery. The mother needs to kind of get out of the way, right? So everything from Percival of the Knights of the Round Table, he, he then goes off in search of the Holy Grail. That was written almost a thousand years ago. Everything from that to Bambi in, in the Disney movie. Here's what Terry Reel says about that. And one of the great myths is that we have to turn boys into men by pulling them from the arms of their sort of intrinsically regressive, incestuous mothers. It takes a man to do that because, God forbid, a mother should be left alone with a boy. She'll just infantilize him and turn him into that dreaded creature, a mama's boy. This is all bullshit. I mean, you know, I have three sons, um, and I had just had this moment where it, it was almost like a visual image that that had come to me in kind of an academic conversation that you were having, where I just saw my sons being pulled mm-hmm. away from me, you know. And okay, so it's, it wasn't that they were being drafted into a war, but it almost felt like that mm-hmm. that they were being. I actually had had an experience that my son's therapist had criticized him for how close we are and how much he was telling me about what was going on in his life. And, you know, I know that the therapist, it came from a good place and he, he wasn't trying to hurt, but I, it, I just lost it. So, but, but what I want to mention about this is that, Chenjerai, he doesn't talk at length about it, but he does mention his concern about empathy. And this is also something that's a big deal to me and, and certainly to writers and, you know, poets in particular. Like, you know, as a poet, I want to make people feel things. And I want to, you know, make the feelings like strong. And, and yet, especially over the past five, 10 years, I've become very skeptical about the ways in which art and definitely journalism kind of works almost on the level or close to the level of advertising, you know, to manipulate the audience into having feelings into, and, and a certain kind of imaginative empathy that we were taught is kind of the basis of affecting change. But Chenjerayan, you know, is raising the question of like, when we see these videos of police brutality, or when we, you know, uh, I'm extending, you know, this thought into when we read a novel, like, you know, a fine balance, you know, and you're, and you're hearing about the history of a, 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 of a, a character or of a people. And, you know, it's just, you cry, you pull, you know, you, but then what? 
then what? Right, and right. that to some extent, it may be that the empathy is dangerous because it, it causes you to feel that you are a good person because you cried mm. and you, you. And that that's, the, that's it. That's it. That's the point. Oh, good. I, oh, I discovered that I'm a good person because I was moved. Right. And it's almost worse yeah. than not having this kind of potentially cathartic yeah. moment because you might be more likely to to act. So yeah. it it's it's a kind of a two-part question. One is yeah. like how do you how are you feeling now about empathy in general, but also specifically like as an audio maker, you're working towards those moments. You want me to pull mm. over on the side of the road and cry, <laughs> even though you were you didn't when know I me. I saw on Twitter that you'd be like, yes. Yeah, right. I made her cry. <laughs> you know, but it's easy to w- make a white woman cry, as we as we all know. But, you know, so well, you. a mother. Yes. And, and a father, I'm here to tell you. Yeah. No, it actually, even when you said that, I was, I was like, I was choking up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um because man, our kids, oh my God. And yeah, that thing about, and I, and I really could feel that about imagining the mothers out there. And when you think about that eight year old boy and that 10 year old boy and what they're like, and then just that, that this was part 10 for mm-hmm. people, it's called the juggernaut. Right. And it's uh, this, sto- this writer, Ben James tells a story about his 12 year old boy who goes off to middle school and comes home transformed from by the culture of middle school boys right with you know masculinity and homophobia and all this stuff um but to answer your question i I think yeah i'm i'm okay with that i i don't feel like i'm going to great lengths to create those moments over and over i think i would tend to think there's probably more anger being generated Mm. in the list in listeners by these you know, I almost hope that, I guess, in a way, or I feel like that's been a lot of the response um, is, and as well as that kind of clarity, I hope, about how deep the change is that needs to happen and that we actually need to get involved in making that change. And especially as white people and as men and as white men, that it's not enough to, and that's, we've actually said that, as you know, repeatedly with both of these series and certainly with Chandrai's involvement in, in seeing white, that was a theme that came up again and again. It's like, and, and I think the way I put it in the last episode was, you know, for white supremacy to just chug along, keep chugging along, all it will take is for most of us white people who are non-racists to go about our lives mm-hmm. just being good non-racists mm. so yeah i hope that's the more prevalent kind of emotional reaction is more like anger or like a sense of responsibility mm. but yeah i i hear you and i think there is there is danger but i i actually don't it makes me almost want to kind of think back over these series and think about to what extent you know, how many moments were there like that that were likely to move people to tears or that sort of thing? I think, um, you know, I there I don't think there's all that much of that. It's more like, but but there were people, there were people, in fact, a middle-aged white man who I know, who is a filmmaker actually here in Raleigh-Durham, told me that he, that every, every episode of Seeing White brought him to tears. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was the kind of thing you're talking about. I think it was more a kind of like being overwhelmed by the, by the magnitude of the his whiteness and what it means. <laughs> it's, right? You can't, I mean, I don't know who's listening to it and doesn't uh, have that response. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, as you just said, and as comes up over and over again, it, it doesn't take any effort for white supremacy and the patriarchy to continue. I guess, you know, one kind of more extreme version of this question is, do you worry that um, people who actively support white supremacy and, you know, toxic masculinity will use some of these same storytelling tools like a great Ira Glass voice and music and narrative suspense and drama and in order to perpetuate the very things that you are working so hard to undermine. I think they do. Mm-hmm. I think they do all the time. Richard Spencer and you know people like that, they're, they're tugging on the heartstrings in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Rush Limbaugh and people like that, they, they have sort of different styles, right? Mm-hmm. Or it can be a kind of ridicule or a kind of, but rhetoric, I mean, rhetorical strategizing of the highest order. For that matter, I was watching a congressional hearing today, and <laughs> it drives you crazy. Right. Um, yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. and you teach audio and documentary. Yeah. You know how how do you handle that with your students? How do you handle it? Both when you have a student who wants to tell a story and is telling perhaps telling a story really effectively that you find really deeply offensive and troubling, mm. or You know, how do you or do you talk to the students about what are the ethical ramifications of pulling on the heartstrings, even if you think it's a, you know, really worthwhile story? Right. Well, I guess I, yeah, I think I really haven't had experiences that I can think of where a student was, I felt pushing emotional buttons for a, for what I felt was a negative story. I feel like more like what it has tended to come up almost more in a kind of discussion about craft and like things like, you know, if you actually really are patently pulling on, trying to pull on people's heartstrings, it's actually not going to work. You'll turn off the listener or even, you know, if somebody cries in an interview and really like loses it for two minutes, you you don't want to use that right mm. on the on the air maybe you want to use the first four seconds of them losing it you know and then get it anyway so well, which ha- is a wait, different... how do you distinguish so, so... between patently and then the uh, you know <laughs> well I, I guess i don't know i guess to me it's sort of an issue of honesty right like i'm okay with something being moving mm-hmm. if 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 it genuinely is if that happened there's something that happened that's moving or somebody was moved um, and that happened on tape or something. I, I, I guess I wouldn't, I'm, I'm enough of a, I don't know, entertainer or something. I, I, I do want to move people. It's mm-hmm. like you said, but I don't feel like I, that's the thing driving me all the time. It's more like, I think in these series in particular, what was more front and center was ideas and information. And here's kind of how we think the world is. But actually, here's some evidence that it's it's this other way mm. and that that was more the front and center motivation and really what I was working with. But then, yeah, there are things like in Man, Sandra Arrington telling the story of her mother being raped by the two white cops in Montgomery in 1949. 
she told it pretty matter-of-factly though too mm -hmm. it wasn't really it wasn't really milked i didn't think for emotion but obviously it's a painful and dramatic story that's meant to make people feel something and care something but in the service of here's here's a kind of new perspective on the way the civil and what drove the civil rights movement that you may not have heard before right, right. do you have a set of guidelines for yourself about either what kinds of stories you're willing to tell or not tell or the titration point mm -hmm. between when I'm teaching poetry, you know, especially with my graduate students, um, sentimentality yeah. is a word that comes up a lot. And um, it's, it's very complicated because a lot of people kind of have internalized this idea that like, you know, sentimentality is bad. And there are certainly many problems with certain kind of sentimentality. At the same time, it's also a code and an epithet that's primarily been levied against women and, mm -hmm. and women writers. You know, you don't, it's too sentimental is a, is a coded way of saying, you know, it's often a woman writing about women's bodies and yeah. feelings. And, and so we're going to try to make sure that doesn't get well reviewed or something. So have you developed over the years things that you are like, you know what, I, not necessarily everybody has to follow these rules, but these are the rules that are important for me to make sure I'm kind of on the right side of what stories I tell and how I tell them. I don't think I would put, I could put it in terms of rules. Mm -hmm. It's not anything that I've codified even loosely. I suspect that, you know, if we had a con longer conversation and used examples or something mm -hmm. that, that, that I, that I might be able to come up with a few, <laughs> uh, but I guess it's mostly kind of by feel and by experience and having had worked with good people and editors and people like that. But yeah, I, yeah, I, mm -hmm. don't, I don't, I don't think I have a good answer to that question. Yeah. So let's go back for just one second to this this question that Chendrai, that both of you keep coming back to, which is, let's make sure we get to the point where we talk about what to do. Uh -huh. um, and everybody should go and listen to the whole series and the last episode. But I am going to maybe do a slight spoiler, which is this question of what to do. And um, some of the things you say are, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, these yeah. are just notes to myself, but at the very least, uh, white people need to educate themselves on um, some really core principles, such as the fact that race as we know it is man-made, that whiteness was invented to justify slavery and other forms of oppression, that racist ideas are the result of oppression, not the cause. And I think this is extremely surprising to many, many <laughs> white people. Yeah. Um, and then these questions of like how to sacrifice some of the advantages of whiteness. I loved this, how to learn to receive criticism, particularly racial criticism with grace, yeah. reflect on that criticism and seek to change your behavior. Yeah. There you're quoting uh, Robin DiAngelo yep. who wrote, wrote White Fragility. Yeah. And then um, Chenjirai, who throughout the series is really helpful in always wanting to reframe a conversation that tends to be 
about individuals towards thinking about systemic racism and institutions. Um, so in the way that you organize, not that individuals are not important, but that one has to really be thinking about the way systems are working. So, you know, my question for you is, from your own perspective, having done this series, have there been like concrete changes along these uh, lines that have come into your life and have listeners um, shared with you the kind of what to do part as it's affected them after listening to the series? Mm. Again, the word clarity comes to mind for me. And if you talk about sort of what's changed and that, that distinction between individual attitudes, prejudices, on the one hand, and systemic, institutionalized systems of, you know, of advantage and disadvantage on the other is so important. And it just notice, so here we're sitting here in February of 2019, just in the last couple of weeks, the last week or two, we've had, we've had all this stuff coming out in Virginia with the blackface and the, et cetera. And then Liam Neeson saying that he wanted to kill a black man after who was it was raped, was his girlfriend or something. And the things that come into the media mostly about are, about race are, are about individual bigotry. Mm-hmm. Oh, so somebody is found to have said something or done something that we consider racist, and then you have a big argument. Well, but are they really racist in their heart? And this is the big question we're going to debate now. And almost never is it about, okay, why is it that the average black household in America has $7 in assets for the, every $100 that the average white household has. And how over 400 years has that come to be? Mm-hmm. Right. So, et cetera, et cetera, right? Why, why do we have a deeply racialized, you know, why do we have inequities in our school system, in our criminal justice system that are deeply racialized and correlate in deep ways along? You know, what would it take to, to fix that, right? We don't, we, we rarely have those conversations. So that's a real point of clarity. And it drives me nuts now, I think in a way that it still probably doesn't drive me nuts in the way that it does somebody like Chenjirai, right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm not being harmed by that failure. I'm kind of offended by it, you know, sort of intellectually. And I, and I don't like living in an unjust society. So it offends me in that way. But anyway, I just, you know, like, I see that with more mm-hmm. clarity. What was the other question? You asked me about what have we heard from people? Yeah, you know, I, not that much, honestly. Mm-hmm. Well, it, you know, it's sort of like, for one thing, it's what you hear from listeners is what you see on social media mostly. And we have had things like people started a discussion group in their community mm-hmm. and and then maybe they get to talking about what's some stuff that we can work on and how can we, what can we do? But even the Racial Equity Institute, the people who ran that, and that was a, a multiracial organization by design that leads these anti-racism courses. You know, at the end of that workshop, they said, you're gonna be asking us, well, what should we do? And we're not going to tell you. We don't have an answer to that. Mm. It, it's don't just run out and do something. In other words, you probably need to learn more because also you, you you'll you'll burn out if you because you might be excited 
today and thinking, oh, I've figured out racism, so now I'm going to go be a more active anti-racist. But you probably need, you have more work to do probably mm. personally and in dealing with your fragility before you can be of use, mm. stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I took something of a lead from that and not trying to feel like, okay, now I'm going to start giving marching orders for people because also, right, it's so complicated and, and there are a gazillion ways. But I do, we do, as you, as you say, we sort of encourage people to think about, is there some way that I can actually put my shoulder to the wheel in my community or at some other way at the larger level? Um, and then we also talk about things like reparations mm -hmm. and, and wishing that we, yeah, we should be having that conversation as a society reparations, but also some of these other things that now are part of the dialogue, like job guarantee or baby bonds or things that could actually help to close systemically some of these huge gaps that we have in wealth and income and, and opportunity. Mm -hmm. And certainly there's plenty of legislation still to change and, uh, yeah. you know, education and the scientific communities and, you know, yeah, and voting rights yeah. and, and on and on and on. Yeah. Uh, what are you working on now? What's next? <laughs> What's coming? Yeah, I'm gonna just going to be very broad about yeah. it. Uh, so it is going to be another series, you know, a kind of probably dozen part series, and it's going to take months and months. It's probably going to be late mm. 2019, if not even the beginning of 2020, that it'll come out. But let's just say I think it's going to have to do with questions about it's let it's going to be continue in the general vein of sort of rather deep and big issues about who we are the kind of the general frame is democracy i hmm. think for for this for this next one awesome i look forward to that yeah well thank you so much <laughs> this is i mean you've been so generous with your time and i i really appreciate it and i hope people will be as interested um in both what you've done and and hearing you talk about the process but it's been really really exciting to get to meet you in person <laughs> well thank you i enjoyed the conversation very much thank you I appreciate your interest yeah. and all your gracious words this has been episode 67 of commonplace conversations with poets and other people featuring john bewin i'm your host rachel zucker the Commonplace team includes Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, Doreen Wang, and Becca DiGregorio. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. The music you're listening to was written and recorded by Moses Zucker-Gorin. Many thanks to the University of North Carolina Press, Bold Type Books, Beacon Press, and Joy Cats for sending us books for this episode, and to all the publishers who support Commonplace. Many thanks to our patrons, and thank you, listener. Thank you for listening.